jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Okay, we are in the midst of Mishnah number 6 in chapter 6. It's on page 293 in your Siddur. And we were in the middle of learning about 48 different ways that a person can succeed in Torah study. To be sure, 48 ways that are necessary, 48 approaches that we need to have to incorporate into our efforts so that we are successful. And we are up to Hamakir Es which is in the last quarter of the page. The Mishnah tells us that the next thing that's necessary to succeed in Torah study, Makir means to recognize. Mekaymai comes from the Hebrew word Makom, which means place. So Hamakir Es Makomo, one who recognizes their place. This is understood in two very different ways. The Bartanura says that when somebody studies and then you come to the end of your day or the end of your week, when you start the next morning or the next week or the next semester, do you remember where you left off? Or do you forget? You forget. If you forget, that's no good. <laughs> In order to be successful, you have to be makir. You have to recognize the place where you left off. The Bartanur gives us a very interesting example. The halacha is that we are never permitted to finish the judiciary hearings in the evening, at night. Only during the day. So if there's a question in a Din Torah and we come to an impasse and the sun is setting, we have to adjourn for the day and we continue the next day. Now, very, very unlike the courts that you see here in Canada, in order for a Bezdin to render a decision... It can never be one person. There has to be numerous people. The smallest court possible is comprised of three judges. That's called a Bezdin. Sanhedri Akhtana, a small Sanhedrin, has 23 judges. And the large court, Sanhedrin Hagdelo, the Supreme Court that was in Yerushalayim, in the Beit HaMikdash, was comprised of 71 judges. Why do we need so many judges? Can you imagine how many opinions they must have had? And these were all good opinions, scholarly opinions. And it's not because we wanted to look ominous or official. Somebody comes before our court and says, Ooh, there's so many people over there. It strikes fear into your heart. But rather because we wanted everybody's opinion. Very interestingly, the Sanhedrin would sit in a semicircle. And the Av Bezdin, the chief justice, would sit in the middle. And he would be flanked by people who were smaller in stature, in scholarship, or in knowledge or wisdom. And the very outside of the circle sat the people who were just at the beginning. He would be brought up to the bench. You see, there were many scholars who weren't in a judicial position yet. They were students. They would sit and listen. There was an audience, actually, when Sanhedrin was in session. And the students would sit and listen. That's how they would learn Torah. If there was a vacant seat, they would call somebody up from the farm team. Right? They would bring them up to the major leagues. And then you would start it at the end, and then slowly but surely, people would move up. So who do you think should speak first? The chief justice, or the smallest member of the court? Why the smallest member? Not to be influenced. If the chief justice speaks, who are you, who are you to argue? 
chief justice is a venerated 75-year-old sage. And here you have a young person who's 27. He's going to argue with the sage. Could be his grandfather. So it's not only a question of having the chutzpah to open your mouth, but the truth is your mind stops working. If I were to say something to you, a, a, a scientific principle, you could easily begin to argue. You wouldn't just accept it. What if I tell you Einstein said? Automatically your brain accepts it. Your brain doesn't work the same way. I find it very interestingly when I learn Torah. If I read something that somebody said, a great Torah sage, I'm not able to think anymore, to question the same way. If somebody would say, throw an idea at me, it could be Rashi, the Rambam, the Ramban, I automatically would start to argue. Obviously I'd be wrong. And it will take me some time to understand why I'm wrong. But my mind doesn't necessarily accept it right away. Whereas when it comes along with so and so said, automatically your mind stops working. This is human nature. Because when you know that there's somebody so much greater that espouses this opinion, so why bother you? It's futile, it's hopeless. That's not what we want in the Sanhedrin. We want everybody's opinion. And the reason that we want everybody's opinion is because we're looking for fairness. You know, there's a fascinating halacha relates to last week's parsha. If a court sits in session and they're judging a murderer, a person who has taken another life for which there's capital punishment, and nobody in the court is able to find a zuchut, any merit on that person's behalf. You know what the halacha is? The person will not be put to death. A capital punishment can never be administered if there isn't a liberal opinion in court. If nobody can find something to say about them, then the person cannot be convicted. The only way we can be convicted is if there's a, a discussion. There's an argument. Somebody finds something positive to say. Somebody finds a schus, a merit. Say, well, maybe it's not an airtight case. Maybe I'm doubtful because of this, that, or the other thing. Of course, the commentaries of the Gemara ask, it sounds ridiculous. What if it's such an open, shut case that it's impossible to find a merit? Why would that person not be convicted? The Gemara answers something which is very, very interesting. Not the Gemara, the sages. Uh, the commentaries in the Gemara say that Torah punishment is really kindness. How is that possible? How could punishment be kindness? Imagine if you were destined to suffer in elementary school. But as a result of your being at the bottom of the class and not respected, and you're not really a success story in elementary school, or even in high school, you're going to be a success story in your adult life. Would you forgo that? And say, who cares about, so what if I'll be the nerd in school? I'll be Mr. and Mrs. Success later on. And indeed, how many people are like that? In school, they're the biggest nerds. And then they turn out to be a rising star. And the coolest kid in class is a yukul today. He can't make a living. Right? The loser. It happens. Right? You look, you look back. You say, 10 years after class of 60, class of 70. Very interesting to look 10, 20, 30, 40 years back and see what happened to who was the cheverman those days. The one who didn't learn a Jewish word. The one who wasn't interested in opening a book. And the person who was busy running around. And what's left with all the running around? Nothing. And somebody else who was diligent and applied themselves and wasn't Mr. and Mrs. Popular, and they succeeded in the end. Obviously, you would say, it would be cruel or foolish to choose success in the evanescent years of elementary school or high school and ruin the rest of your life. Correct? So let's imagine, if we will, that the world we live in, this world, is a very, very short blip on the screen. Short period of time. There's much, much more before we come into being and there's eternity that follows. Now you have an opportunity to maybe have not such a 
a long end of the stick for your short sojourn here on earth. In 70, 80 years, 90 years can be very short. But for all eternity, you're going to be a success story. Which would you choose? Would you choose suffering here in this world and success in the other world? Or say, listen, I can't handle suffering. Let it be perfect here. And the afterlife, forget about it. Which would you choose? As long as you believe in what I'm saying, you would obviously choose the latter. The truth is we all do believe it. It's just, it's not like practical. It's not real to us. But deep down we do believe it. Because when we lose a loved one, we're certain that they're in a good place. And we say, Kaddish, and they give tzedakah. And we know that the neshama is growing. But that's the truth. It's a truth that's not apparent to us, something we can't see on a regular basis. So when Torah says you get a punishment, is it because the Torah is vindictive? We want to get back at somebody? That person brought about evil in this world, let them suffer now. That's not the Torah way of looking at it. The Torah is all merciful, and God is called Rachamana, the merciful one. Or we say, Rachamana Omar means the Torah said. Mercy speaks. Compassion speaks. So how does a compassionate Torah condemn somebody to death? Say the commentaries, when a person is going to be put to death, this will save their soul. Their sin is so great, and what they did is so intense, that they really, from the perspective that we look at right now, have no hope for the future. An unredeemable soul. A soul that will be damned forever. That will never ever come back with Chiyas HaMes when Mashiach comes. A soul that can never be redeemed in God of And there are Nishamas like that. Nishamas that are lost forever. How can we save a Nishama like this? By inflicting on it the punishment that Torah says. And that's why there are different grades of capital punishment. Certain grades which one is more painful than the next. Death is not an easy or convenient comfortable experience. It's a painful thing. And the pain of death atones for sin. That's why the deathbed, one of the things we say is, we ask Hashem that if, person, if I'm going, that the pain of my experience should atone for whatever I did wrong in this earth. And the pain of death is able to cleanse us. And then if it doesn't cleanse us entirely, we have a little purgatory experience, which is really cleansing. Again, it's not Hashem being vindictive. Hashem is not getting back at you. It's, it's a sterilization process, so that the neshama can realize its true potential. Now, a person who is so sordid, who has done a sin or committed an act of murder, in which nobody can find any zechus, there's no way to find any redeeming quality, that person doesn't deserve death. Mind you, if they're a danger to society, they'll be locked up for the rest of their life. But they will not have the good fortune, the mercy of being put to death, because their soul is unredeemable. And we are not given the ability or the power to bring atonement for that neshama. This is the logic. A little bit hard to understand. But this is the logic. This is, there's a similar concept that the Marsha, one of the great Talmudic commentaries, talks about there's a, an, a clear dictate in the Torah that you cannot be punished unless the Torah clearly forbids something. What if the Torah doesn't clearly forbid it, but logic, Torah logic forbids it? It's self-understood. An example of this is in uh, the various laws that Torah governs human sexuality. And there are certain relationships that are absolutely forbidden. There's a space here. So one of the prohibited relationships, Rahmanul Islam, is incest. A father-daughter relationship. This is something that is totally prohibited by Torah. I think in Ontario they're probably permitted in the two or three years because of the slippery slope we're going. <laughs> This is, uh, they just keep, tear down, keep tearing down walls. Keep tearing down morality. 
But at any rate, today still in the world it's recognized that this is something which is illegal and bad and wrong and it's called incestuous. So what happens if somebody does that? It's a terrible punishment. Torah gives a, a, a terrible, terrible capital punishment for such an offense. What happens when it's a situation of a grandfather-granddaughter? Terrible punishment. Torah says it clearly. Here's the interesting thing. Grandfather-granddaughter, the Torah specifies. Father-daughter, the Torah doesn't. Why? So the answer is, the Gemara says, Kalvachomer. It's logic. It goes without saying. If imagine if one's daughter's daughter is forbidden, or one's son's son is forbidden, how much more so that one's son or one daughter itself goes without saying. But here's the catch. If it's not written clearly in the Torah, then it cannot be punished. Punishment can only be meted out when something is clearly delineated in the Torah, not when we derive it by means of logic, even Torah logic. So everybody goes crazy. So what is this? A person is going to live with his granddaughter, capital punishment. Daughter? He's free. How can such a thing be? The Masha explains. It's such a bad sin that even death cannot atone for that. Same logic. Okay, so we have this idea that a person has to be able to find a zechus. And that's why we had very contentious courts. Courts that there was screaming and yelling. You can only imagine what it was like. You know what the Knesset's like? <laughs> You can only imagine what a Sanhedrin was like. Everybody was out for the truth. Everybody wanted integrity of Torah. And nobody said, well, I don't know. To be sure, there was order in the courts. It went one at, a, one at a time. Everybody said an opinion. But then there was a period where everybody argued. There was a great deal of argument going on. And before the courts would condemn a person to death, they would argue the issue to the nth degree. Until they would finally issue a, a ruling. The Gemara says that a court that convicted a person once in 70 years was called a bloody court. So the capital punishment was a power they wielded, but not something they implemented often. At the same time, the Gemara says if it's necessary, it's done every day. You know, and, and the members of the court, by the way, who convict and condemn somebody to death have to fast on that day. They don't eat. And they have to do tshuva and ask Hashem forgiveness. It's a very, very serious thing. Something we have not seen in the last 2,000 years since the base of English was destroyed. But something which the Chachamim took unbelievable uh, responsibility for. Took it very seriously. Now, the point I'm trying to make is, if we have a deliberation and the deliberation doesn't come to a conclusion, because we can't have a majority. Majority means you have to have majority that rule one way and a minority ruling the other way. And we can't come to majority because there are undecideds. Eventually, if they're still undecided, we have to bring new members into the court. There's a whole system of how we are able to adjudicate and administer Torah uh, justice. So the point I want to make is, the next morning when you sit down, you sit and say, okay, where were we? So what was I saying yesterday? <laughs> that's not, that's not, you can't learn Torah that way. Imagine a court like that. Well, let me look at my notes. Ah, yesterday I said this and this. If somebody has to look back to the notes to see what they said yesterday, it means they never took it seriously. And if you don't take Torah seriously, you have no business succeeding in Torah. And this says the Bartanura is the meaning Hamakiras Makomo. Know your place. If you take your study seriously, you don't sit down a week later and say, hmm, where was I up to? This, that, or the other. If it's important to you, you would remember. So, really, in a nutshell, what the mission is telling you to make sure it's important to you. We, we focus or zero in on a symptom. The symptom is knowing your place. But what's behind the symptom is having a proper understanding because this is important now 
also is interpreted in a very literal fashion, which means one who recognizes their own place. You know, sometimes a person doesn't know their place, and they get up and they start offering opinions where it's like, not exactly needed. It wasn't asked for at this point. Two doctors are deliberating what type of medical procedure, and, uh, you know, a nurse is sitting there, I think you should do this. Who asked you? Uh, but, but where did that opinion come from? You have to be marketless McKinney. You have to know your place. And if you can't speak intelligently about something, or this is not your place, learn how to be quiet. As the Mishnah says elsewhere, the key to wisdom is silence. Number one, because if you're silent, you'll listen and you'll learn. Number two, if you're silent, nobody will know how stupid you are. <laughs> Don't mouth off. Don't offer an opinion all the time. I know it's a very Jewish thing to have an opinion about everything. But it doesn't have to be said always. So, this is the next part of the Mishnah says, you have to know your place. To be sure, this is where the Mishnah talks about Torah study and success in Torah study, which is the focal point of a Jew's life. That has been what we lived and died for over the ages. But it also could be used in life in general. Know your place, and even if something's important, know what you're up to. To be orderly. If you started doing something, finish at a certain point, know where you finished, and be able to pick up at whatever point you're ready to do that, know where you left off. The next thing is, a person who is satisfied with their lot. What a wonderful thing to be satisfied with your lot. How few people are satisfied with their lot. If one is happy, then they're able to be successful. If somebody is not happy, they're not satisfied with the lot, how are they going to have time to learn Torah? My house is not big enough, my car is not fancy enough, my bank account is not full enough. Who has time to study Torah? When I'll do all the other important things, then I'll study Torah. So one never has time for Yiddishkeit. And tragically, I see it every day. People come in their 60s and 70s. I want to get involved with Yiddishkeit. Or I wish my kids would come. But what example do we show them? We're busy involved in Narishkeit. So the kids are involved in Narishkeit. And the kids will tell their kids, you should do the right thing. And this will go away for generation to generation. Everybody tells the children to do the right thing. The Kutzke Rebbe once said, he said, where is the child the whole world is waiting for? So they said, what are you talking about, Rebbe? He says, I come to Yid, I shall learn Torah, I come to Shul, get involved in Yiddishkeit. He says, Rebbe, I got no time. So make a living. He says, you can't put bread in your table. I could, but for the kinder. I have to work for the kids. I have to make sure they have everything. Comes in the next generation, in the same story. Everybody's working for the kinder. He says, show me the child the world is waiting for. <laughs> Nobody has time to do anything. It's always for somebody else. People have to understand that the greatest legacy they can leave for their children is a life of Yiddishkeit. A life that's full of meaning. Not a bank account. Not a fancy piece of furniture. It's meaningless. It's something else for the kids to fight about. <laughs> so, Samer Bechelke means to be satisfied. And another thing that the Bartonura says, to take it a step further, to be happy that you have the opportunity to study Torah. How many people don't have this opportunity? How many people wish they had the opportunity? When you have the opportunity to study Torah, you should be happy about it. That the fact that Hashem gave you a Torah, and the fact that you're able to learn, and able to know, is in and of itself a source of joy. Next thing is, A person has to set up a fence for their words. Now this is to be taken again, once again, in two ways. In a literal way we can understand it, and then by extension it has a wider meaning. How often... Do we say one thing and people understand us to have said something else? How often does that happen? And how often do the results end up so embarrassing and so detrimental and damaging? 
And how could we have avoided that by being a little more clear? If you wanted to say something, say it clearly. Don't speak ambiguously. It's my responsibility. I'm going to say what I have to say. If they want to understand, let them understand. No, it doesn't work that way. You all, we all bear responsibility. And we have to speak clearly. And speak carefully. And this is called offense. In this week's Parsha, we have a very interesting mitzvah. Which most of us in Thornhill never get to fulfill because we have slanted roofs. But if you have a flat roof, it says you have a mitzvah to build a fence. It's actually a mitzvah. You get up on your roof, take a hammer and a saw, and you make a bracha. Hashem who commanded us to set up a fence. Asiyas maika. Lasot maika. To make a fence. Why do you have to make a fence? Because if there's no fence and people are playing volleyball on the roof, what might happen? Somebody might fall off. In other words, you have a sacred responsibility not only to help somebody who falls off and breaks his legs, but to make sure it doesn't happen to begin with. Which means, by extension, to make sure that your home is a safe place. You don't have faulty hinges that are falling off or rusty nails that are sticking out. It's a biblical mitzvah to make sure that your environment is a safe one so that somebody should not become hurt. And that mitzvah means to make a fence, or by extension, in Mishnah Hebrew, it's called siyag. So in the same way then, of course metaphorically, I can't say it's actually that mitzvah, but metaphorically, we have to make, build a fence to make sure somebody doesn't get hurt. I, it's their fault, they should have been more careful, that I asked them to dance a jig on the roof. Maybe he will dance a jig on the roof. Then you have to be concerned with that. Maybe they will take their words out of, out of context. Then make sure your words are clear. And that is the simple meaning of Isa Siyag Lidvarav. The Bartanura says... He, that he wants to take it a step further. Siyog is a fence or something additional, something extra. It's not necessary. We do it for added success, for added security or safety. He says, when we follow a Torah dictate, what's the real reason for it? Why do we follow a Torah dictate? Why do we follow a Torah rule? Because it's logical, makes sense, because we're going to benefit or profit off it. Why do we do it? Because Hashem commanded you. Because you have to. It's obligatory. That's, that's the real truth. Why? So why do we bother giving reasons for mitzvahs? There are many books that are written by great Torah sages called Tameha Mitzvahs. The reason for mitzvahs. There are philosophical books like that, like the book of Chinuch, the book of Torah education. Maimonides wrote a book called Merdin Nevuchim, in which he offers reasons for mitzvahs. The Hasidic masters wrote many books of Tameha Mitzvahs, explaining Kabbalistic connotation to a mitzvah. Chaim Vital wrote a book or Priyetz Chaim. Why is there this issue of explaining mitzvahs if ultimately whatever we understand about the mitzvah is still lackluster and it's never the full force of the mitzvah anyway? Because it's impossible for us to understand Hashem's will. So why bother? The answer is because if people understand it, they have more fervor or passion for doing the mitzvah. That doesn't mean to make up explanations that are not true. It means that if there's a true explanation at some level, there's value to it. And it helps people incorporate the mitzvahs into their life. That's called making offense for your words. So if you have a teaching you receive from a, a Torah sage, you could just say it. Torah, Torah sage says, this is what it says. This is, this is the, the, the dictate. This is the way it's supposed to be. And somebody else comes along and says, you know what? Let me explain it to you. Let me explain why the Rebbe said this and this. Let me explain why the Pesach said X, Y, and Z. There's a reason for it. Even if it's not the full reason, if you can give some Torah logic to somebody, you have created a fence. You have helped somebody not fall off the deep end. Because they'll say, oh, it's logical. Okay, in that case, I'll accept it. 
which does not mean to create foolish Torah logic. Or Torah logic which is chas v'shalom, not true. Sometimes we don't know the reason. <laughs> I'll give you a very interesting example. That Ambam writes in his laws of, of health that a person should not drink too much water. He says drinking water is not a good thing. Now, of course, modern medicine has a problem with this because we know drinking water to be hydrated is a very good thing. So I was talking once to a particular scientist and he said to me, this makes no sense to me. I said, yes, but it's Torah. The Rambam says it. And maybe in 15 years from now we'll understand it. Maybe in 100 years we'll understand it. But it says in the Torah, maybe it was for people who lived in those arid conditions and had their bodies worked in a certain way. For them it was the right thing. And for our bodies, for the world has changed. Which is the way we understand many of the, much of the Torah's advice in so much as, as health and wellness are concerned. In fact, there's even a prohibition to live your life according to the dictates of the Gemara or Rambam because we say Nishtanu Hativim. Nature has changed. It's not that the Torah is not true. The Torah, the Rambam, wrote his rules for 800 years ago for people who had a certain diet, who lived in a certain atmosphere, with a certain ozone layer, with that climate, with that global warming, and so on and so forth. This was healthy for them. And the variables change, so then the rules change. This is the typical way we, we, we understand the halacha, which seems today to be out of sorts with documented medical evidence. He tells me, I, I guess the only reason must be that in the Rambam's days the water was not clean. So he figured, drink less water and, and you have less, less impurity of bacteria. If you ask me, I don't buy it. I think that's Narshkat. That's not the simple meaning. It's not what the Rambam says. So to give, make up reasons like that, I'm not so sure if that's called Torah or that's what meaning of, of Siyag Ledvarev is. But I think that to say something like, things have changed, variables have changed, yes, this is very correct. So we have to use Torah logic in being matim, in giving reasons for a mitzvah. The Bartanur gives a fascinating example of an expression the Torah uses and the explanation that is given for it. And this is regarding a practice that many of us today are uncomfortable with. Some Jews are even ashamed when they open up the book of Leviticus and they read about sacrifices. And it sounds to them barbaric or pagan or using other words, chas v'shalom. It's Torah. The same Torah tells us to put on film and to get married and to eat kosher tells us to bring a sacrifice. Makes sense to you? It's not a question of makes sense or not. For us, it's something we haven't seen. And since it hasn't been seen for so many thousands of years, so it's, emotionally we can't relate to it. But it's Torah. It's Hashem's Torah. And when Mashiach will come, of course, we'll start bringing sacrifices again. Somebody told me there once in a Reformed temple for a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah speech was all about how voices, how proud I am to be a Reformed Jew when we reject Leviticus and we know it's false. And thank God, he says, I'm a Jew who's not barbaric and pagan. Right? This, this, is, this is heresy. Outright heresy. So about karbana sacrifices, which many of us are uncomfortable with today because it has not been part of the common human experience, not something we do, just like you and I are uncomfortable eating cockroaches. But in China, they're very comfortable eating cockroaches. Or snakes or dogs. What makes you normal and the Chinese crazy? Maybe they're normal and we're crazy. Who says that's more normal? So for us it's normal because Torah says it's wrong. Torah says it's wrong to eat a pork and wrong to eat a snake. But why is one really disgusting and one not? It isn't. You have to realize that a lot of the things that we create in our minds is because that's the civilization we live in. That's what we become accustomed to. It's not good or bad, strange or normal. So he says with regard to sacrifices, the words the Torah uses is, Reach Nichoach. An aromatic pleasant smell. He says, where's the reach nechayach? Where's the aromatic pleasant smell? And the answer that's brought in the Medrash, and Rashi quotes it numerous times, he says, nachas ruach lefanai. A nachas ruach means, you know what nachas is, right? 
A good feeling. A good feeling before me says God, Sha'amarti Vinasaditsaini. I said, you listened. And that's the meaning of Reach Nikhayach. In other words, the meaning of aromatic smell is, I said you listened. What is the Bartanura saying here? If anybody has ever smelled burning flesh, you'll know it's anything but aromatic. Anybody have those zappers in the backyard? We get a moth caught over there? And the, the, it starts to burn, you know? Doesn't that happen? It's a terrible smell. Now that's only a little moth. Can you imagine what it's like to burn a whole animal? It's not a pleasant smell at all. So what does it mean, pleasant smell? God has pleasant smells. God needs perfume. But what, what does this mean? So the explanation given is, Nachas Ruach is an idiom of the word, Reach Nichoyach. And therefore, pleasant smell, idiomatically in Hebrew, means pleasant feeling. Where does the pleasant feeling or the Nachas, the joy, come from? Amarti Menasaritsayim. I said you listened. The Rebbe takes this a step further. In one of his very interesting sikhas, the Rebbe asked the question, why specifically about this mitzvah do we say a nachas ruach for God? You kept Shabbos, nachas ruach. You ate kosher, nachas ruach. Amarti, God says you listened. Why is it that this specific mitzvah of sacrifices do we say a nachas ruach before me? And he answers that one of the hardest things for a person to do is to waste something. Just give it away. You want to feel you got something in exchange. So if you tell me, take your animal and shecht it, I'll shecht it. Then I get a steak from it, and I get a pair of tefillin from it, and I get a leather pocketbook from it. Right? The Indians used to make use of everything. In general, people made use of everything once upon a time. There was no waste. Here you have a perfectly good animal, a wonderful specimen you could bring into the state fair, or, or, or you can feed who knows how many families. And what are you doing with it? It gets burned, especially an ola, burnt offering, 100% burnt. For heaven's sake, what's going on here? What would God get out of that? What does God get out of any of our mitzvahs? Hashem asks us to do what we do. But this is a mitzvah that's most difficult because we seem to have nothing in return. It seems to be an absolute colossal waste. And furthermore, naturally, the stench sickens a human being. It's, it's, a, it's a revolting stench. And yet we do it because Hashem said. So this signifies the greatest devotion to Hashem. When we're not doing it because it makes sense to us. You know, sitting down with the family on Pesach night is a very nice experience. It's not something we have to wrestle with and say, Oh yeah, I wish I didn't have to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. It's a nice experience. It's beautiful to sit together and talk about our history. Okay, the matzah is a little dry. But it's not something which makes you miserable. Not something to say, Why are we doing this? You eat matzah. You save money on pizza. <laughs> it took care of your lunch. It's an expensive lunch. But you get something out of it. Most mitzvahs we do have a good feeling that comes along. We feel something. You know, you have a pair of film. You have something you can touch. People have heirloom film. Shabbat candlestick. It's a beautiful thing. My grandmother's grandmother. People have, you know, for generations. It's a beautiful thing. Or something you use. You buy yourself a beautiful candlestick and you say, I'm going to use this the rest of my life. It, it has, you have a feeling for it. You know, you develop an emotional bond. And the lighting with this Shabbat candlestick, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I never missed lighting my own Shabbat candles. It's a good feeling. Sacrifice is something that leaves us totally empty. So what's this about? And indeed, the Zohar says it's a big mystery. But the Zohar goes on to say, Raza the Kurbana, the mystery of the sacrifice, impacts the mystery of the, uh, the oneness of God. It means we have no understanding, no concept of how powerful the sacrifice is. And that is because Hashem asks us and we listened. The greatest type of dedication to God or self-abnegation, putting self aside and doing what Hashem wants, 
is in the idea of a sacrifice. And that's why in English actually it's called a sacrifice. Although in Hebrew, the word sacrifice has nothing to do with carbon. Carbon is an idiom of the word kiruv, which means closeness. But the Greeks understood that how do you get closeness? When you sacrifice. That's how you get. So that's where the Greeks took the word carbon, and instead of calling it closeness, they called it sacrifice because they're describing the result. In Hebrew, we describe the action. The action is drawing close. What is the result of it ultimately? Oh, oh pardon me. What is. Not the result, but what, what did I do in order to get it? So in English, we focus on what I did. Because English is, the Greeks are very self-serving. It's all about me. In Hebrew, we look about the, 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 the idea, objectively. Objectively, it's an act of kiruv. The Greeks said, but what's in it? What, what did I do? What did I do? I sacrificed. This is true. And because you sacrifice, that creates closeness. Think to yourself, what brings you closer to your spouse than a sacrifice that he or she made? What brings parents and children closest when one makes a sacrifice? Or friends together when one sacrifices something? Time, money, effort, an opportunity. You sacrifice to somebody else. It's also very annoying if somebody reminds you three times a day for 20 years. Remember I sacrificed a night for you? It's <laughs> 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 a terrible feeling. And then like the sacrifice is not a sacrifice anymore because you didn't give anything away. Well, you have something to lord over me. Don't forget the sacrifice. <laughs> A true sacrifice is the one that's not talked about. You know, you recognize, if you're a mensch, you recognize somebody made a sacrifice. But the one who sacrifices doesn't come and inform you. So this is all just an example of the concept of making a siyag, offense for your words. Meaning, when we talk about Torah, talk about mitzvahs, we should articulate, we should explain, we should give the reasons for it. Don't say, it's good enough for you, God said, just do it. You turn people off, though. We lose people. You want to bring Yiddin close to Yiddishkeit? Add a fence. Worry about somebody's security. I have to worry. If they won't accept God's word, let them fall off the cliff. No, no such thing. You build a fence at the cliff. Precisely because it's hard for people to accept things. And it's hard for people to step out of their own orbit and just do it because somebody said. Precisely because it's hard, that's why you should make a fence. You should worry about not only how you feel, but how somebody else will feel and how they will accept it. And that means make a fence to your words. Isn't that amazing? The Mishnah says two words. We could talk about it for 20 minutes. No, we're not hacking at China. I mean, this, is, this is a very good point you're making. You're asking, we talk about blind faith versus understanding. The answer is both are necessary. Both are necessary. In fact, the fundamental principle of Yiddishkeit is Nasev and Mishma. Not that it makes sense. Not that I understand it. But because Shem said, Nasev, we're going to do. We will be obedient. Obedience is certainly the threshold. But having said that, we go beyond that threshold, and from Nasa, from obedience, we go to Nishma, to listening or to understanding. So obviously, when you sit down with somebody and say, let's talk about Yiddishkeit, so why? Why? Because it's nice, because it's fun, because it's going to be a pleasure for you. That's ridiculous. You have a faulty foundation that's going to implode. So we talk about Yiddishkeit because I'm Jewish, because you're Jewish, because you know it's important. You just, you know this meaningful. Yeah, I know. Okay, fine. Now that we got past that first step, let's try to make sense out of it. Let's try to have a passion and a feeling for it. And that's where the reasons come in. And of course, you know, ultimately, you can't say, well, this logic doesn't make sense to me, I reject the mitzvah. It doesn't work that way. We go back to step one. And step one is, the fundamental principle is obedience. Both are important. Both are used and both are necessary. The next thing we need for success in Torah study, you don't touch yourself on the back. Which means 
just because you learned a lot of Torah doesn't mean you should say, oh, look what I did. Or just because you did a mitzvah, a person should say, I, I deserve lots of credit. As the Mishnah says elsewhere, don't bring or credit to yourself or pat, his, pat yourself on the back. Why? Because that's why you were created. What do you think Hashem put you here for? To be a self-serving egomaniac? You will put her to help others. You will put her to study Torah. You will put her to serve Hashem. As the Mishnah says succinctly, Ani Nivresi, I was created, Lishamish Eskoni, to serve my Maker, to serve my Master. That's what we're here for. So a person always has to remember, it's not about how great a sacrifice I made, or how important it is, but rather, it's a given. That's what I'm here for. That's interesting. Somebody else should look at you and say, what a sacrifice. But for you to say it yourself doesn't work. You should always be machzik tovah to somebody else. Somebody else does you a favor, you always have to remember to say thank you. You don't say, no, selfish did a favor. That's what you're supposed to do. I once had a conversation with somebody who's like a, kind of a close, close, close-like relationship, but I felt very frustrated. They never said thank you. They never appreciated anything. So finally I said, okay, I'm going to come, you know, come clean. I said, listen, I want to tell you why I've been staying away from you. I said, you're like, I don't find any menshlachite in dealing with you. If I do something for you, why can't you say thank you? Why can't you just acknowledge it? We never did a favor for somebody. My mother used to always do favors to anybody. Why can't you do favors to people? Because you don't understand. Your mother was a great woman. You know, she should live and be well. That's wonderful. But that doesn't implicate everybody else. Doesn't mean everybody has to do favors to you all the time. We like to have a little bit of appreciation. <coughs> now, it's, it's kind of repugnant when you have to say, can you say thank you? That's, that's what you do with your kids because you're trying to educate them. Say, good luck. Did you have a good time? Yeah, did anybody say thank you to talk to your mommy? No, thank you. Very good. <laughs> Works great with little kids. It's a good educational tool. It's, it's very uncomfortable if you have to remind your friend, you're welcome. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's, and, and we shouldn't have to do that. And it's not even an appropriate thing for us to do. The truth is, you shouldn't have to pat yourself on the back and, 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 and take credit for it. Somebody else, of course, should. And invariably, if somebody doesn't, at some point you may get frustrated. And maybe rightfully so, maybe not rightfully so. Maybe you should be altruistic, maybe you should just be giving and, and never think about a thank you. Maybe you're human. But either way, certainly, it says, The Mishnah's emphasis is, don't pat yourself on the back. Never forget to say thank you. When it comes to Torah study, a person should appreciate that somebody else taught them. A person should appreciate that they were able to glean a message or a lesson. But never to say, oh, I taught so much Torah, or look how successful I became in this area of my Yiddishkeit. The next thing is, a person when he studies Torah has to do so out of love. Ahuv, a person has to do so in a way that's characterized by love. Four very important loves over here. Let's start from number one. We should love the place. The place here is a euphemism that refers to God. A person should serve Hashem not out of awe, fear, and trepidation, but rather out of love. As the Rambam says, A person who serves Hashem out of love, serves Hashem properly. To be sure, there are both dimensions in Yiddishkeit. There is something called Ahavat Hashem and Yirat Hashem. There is love of God and fear of God. And in the Zohar it's written that they are trained Godfin. These are two wings with which you're able to fly heavenward. 
In fact, Al-Tarebbe explains in Tanya that if somebody has a lackluster Judaism, no passion, no fervor for anything they do, and there's no reverence or awe of a mitzvah and of God, what happens to the mitzvah that you do? It stays right here on earth. It doesn't make it heavenward. But he says you should still do mitzvahs. Why? Why? Because the body of the bird is what's important. The wings are just feathers. Somebody else can attach wings later on. The halacha is in the laws of kosher and, and not kosher that if the wings are clipped, the animal is still kosher. If the kishkas are punctured, forget about it. So he says, at least do the mitzvah. Well, not, and not in a punctured way. Do the whole mitzvah. You're missing the passion. The passion will come. They tell a story once the Baal Shemtev walked into a shul where there was many people studying Torah and he he made the show quiet and he said this is such an amazing show it's full of Torah I've never seen a show so full of Torah so they came up and said oh Rebbe thank you thank you very much for the compliment he says it wasn't a compliment all the Torah is being studied here with so much selfishness and everybody's so into himself that the Torah stays right over here it's not going up to heaven where it's supposed to go and he taught them how you study Torah with humility and by putting yourself aside and that elevates the Torah a mitzvah has to be elevated there's another story told uh, where the Balshantan once went on one of his mysterious journeys and he would tell the coachman to come inside and the horses would go and they come to a particular place and there was a ruins and the Balshantan gets out in the ruins and he davens mincha over there and he goes back and they leave the disciples usually were afraid to ask the Balshantan they said, but what, what just happened here? we went to these ruins and we davened mincha what happened? And the Balshantan told him a story that many centuries earlier there had been a nobleman who originally was a Jew and the nobleman had a story, he fell in love with a princess, and he ended up marrying out of the faith, and he left his Yiddishkeit. And later, in his middle-aged years, he became very depressed. And he remembered that studying Gemara brought him great joy. So he went and he bought a full volume of Gemara, and he used to study Gemara. He was married out of the faith, he didn't keep any Yiddishkeit, and he would sit, if I remember the story correctly, he had a big black dog, he would sit and he would uh, take comfort in his big black dog, he would rub his black dog and learn Gemara. And the Vashanta said the Torah that was studied, Nebuch was stuck here for all these years. Because the person learned without Yerat Shemayim, without fear of heaven. There was no reverence for God when he went. No love of God. And Vashanta said, so after so many centuries, he was permitted to daven, and by doing his prayer, he was able to elevate that Torah. Whatever that means. I mean, we, we don't know what this means, to elevate up and down. It's not up and it's not down. Heaven is not, not, not in the skies. And, and, and earth is not here we can touch it. The hell is not beneath the earth. It's all metaphoric terms. Just like you say something is very deep. A deep idea doesn't mean you have to dig to get to it. It's all a metaphor. The point I'm trying to make is that when we speak about Torah and mitzvahs, there's this idea of elevating it, of giving it wings. And the, the wings are both. Ava and Yira. Both are necessary. However, there has to be more love than fear. There has to be awe of God. And there has to be reverence for a mitzvah. If a person has no reverence, so then everything is kind of... You know, it's too easy. It's too, it's too relaxed. And a relaxed pace has to be you have to love your parents. That's not a mitzvah. That's a given. Of course you should love your parents. What is a mitzvah? To fear your parents. Honor and fear. Why do you have to fear your parents? They're going to gobble you up. They're going to hurt you. You show reverence. Today it's very popular in our society to call your parents by the first name. And it's supposed to show closeness. And it does show closeness. But not, not Torah closeness. It's not the proper relationship for parents and children. Proper relationship is respectful, mom or dad, Babi Yazidi, Sabar Safta, whatever term you use. But the point is a respectful term. And there has to be a distance between parents and children. Parents and children have a nice relationship, but it's a parent child relationship. You have your friends, you have your peers, 
you have your children or you have parents and it's very important for us not to confuse those relationships and the way it's characterized in Torah is with awe with reverence same is true with Hashem a person is too comfortable with God oh God come on I love you alright I, I ate a few things it doesn't matter we love each other anyway God it's okay it's all good that, that's a, a ridiculous kind of Yiddishkeit a Yiddishkeit where there's no fear no reverence no awe where, where a person doesn't stand up when the Torah is taken out or a person uh, is not careful and meticulous about doing a mitzvah properly in the confines that the Shogunar gives this is Yiddishkeit gone awry the problem is very often we focus too much on the technical details too much on the awe and on the fear and Yiddishkeit becomes drained of joy and that's what the Mishnah says that's not the way it has to be of course there's reverence for God of course God is far away from us of course, of course we're much smaller than God that goes without saying but a person has to study Torah with a sense of love. What does love mean? The Rambam says, if you want to know what being in love means, he says, find a person who's in love, you'll see they can't think of anything else. The mind is on that all day. You know people in love walk into walls sometimes? Right? <laughs> Do silly things. So what are you, love or something? What happened to you? Okay. Right? They call it like love is, is blah. You know, love does funny things to people. That's how a person should be with Hashem totally in love with Hashem means that's on his mind day and night now something goes wrong oh God what did you do to me today <laughs> and then they remember Hashem but love of Hashem means a person thinks about Hashem all the time and Yiddishkeit is an act of love it's not something I do with a miserable feeling I'm forced into it I have no choice okay God don't strike me I'm going to do what you ask me to do but rather a person does it with a sense of, 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 of fervor you look forward to a mitzvah that's called serving Hashem with love the famous story told about the Belev Yitzchak of Bardichev, one of the great Hasidic masters, that once in the city of Bardichev there was only one Lulav and Esrik. The wealthiest man in town spent an exorbitant sum and he actually had an Esrik. And it was obviously the whole town would come to make a bracha on his Lulav and Esrik. And he was the, he was the hero, you know, the big champion. Everybody's coming to him, right? And he can't do the mitzvah. So the story's told that the night of Sukkot, he finished eating in the Sukkah around midnight, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak shows up at this uh, man's doorstep. Very palatial home, knocks on the door. He says, oh, Rabbi's here. Yes, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, what can I do for you? He says, listen, I know you have a little of an esrog and there's going to be a line tomorrow. And I just, I want to be able to fill the mitzvah the first moment possible. So do you mind, instead of me leaving my house at dawn and coming here and then I lose a few minutes, do you mind if I, I could stand next to the little of an so at the first moment I could right away make a bracha? Okay, fine, no problem. That's what you wanted. So he brings him into the dining room and he says, uh, Here's my little Vanessa. It's in his china closet. Dawn is in three, three and a half hours. The Blavitzuk is sitting there and meditating on the concept of little Vanessa and he's looking with great excitement. He's looking there. In the meantime, the man bids him good night. He goes to sleep. Three, four o'clock in the morning, as dawn is breaking, they hear the shattering of glass. Comes running downstairs. The Blavitzuk was so excited to do the mitzvah that he forgot to open the door of the china closet. Put his hands right through. Can you imagine doing a mitzvah with that kind of love? I can't either. But it doesn't, uh, we're not tzaddikim. But this is something we can hear about, to talk about. Imagine the meaning of, of, of love of a mitzvah. Another story told Rabbi Yisrael on one Yom Kippur night, he finished eating after, after uh, Yom Kippur, and he said, Okay, now I'd like dessert. I said, dessert? Since when do you eat dessert? He wasn't known for his sweet tooth. He said, Of course. He went to the bookshelf, he took out a tractate sukkah which has uh, 30 odd pages in it of Gemara and he had his dessert the whole night he spent learning that was after the whole day fasting and davening he had dessert to learn Gemara all night <laughs> that means to serve Hashem with love in the highest level 
where, where a Jew looks forward to a mitzvah and you relish a mitzvah and, and, and you, you're excited about a mitzvah a very interesting story is told that the Rebbe's wine was made by a sheikhet an older sheikhet and, and he used to supervise it personally especially Pesach the Rebbe didn't use any other wine he would make use his wine and the wine tasted horrible it was terrible wine and as he got older the wine was worse and worse <laughs> right <laughs> the wine supposed to get better with age but but the Rebbe didn't want to offend him and he kept taking his wine so at one point this is like 84, 85 and they're hearing the story from a cousin of ours who was to be in the home was to be a mishamish in the home as the waiter so after Kiddush the Seder night the Rebbe sitting with his Rebbe and after Kiddush he drank the wine and the wine was vile stuff the Rebetzin said, Ach, it says Paskutzva. He said, Russian means disgusting. It was horrible stuff. So the Rebbe smiled and he said to his wife, He made a bracha on it. He said, Kiddush, can't be Paskutzva. <laughs> it was terrible stuff. But the attitude of mitzvah, you know, like, a mitzvah is never ugly. A, a, a mikvah never smells. The wine is never, never vile. Why? Because we serve Hashem with love. And this concept, this is the meaning of When you sit down and you sit with the, to learn Torah It's not a burden It's not a burden because you love what you're doing Because you're in a passionate relationship with God And therefore all the little details They fall aside And the focus is on how wonderful An opportunity is given to us And why do bad things happen to good people right? Why do people suffer why, If God is compassionate If God loves us how is it that, that, that there's so much suffering out there? Why is God doing it? it let me say, let me say two things. The first thing is, I have no idea. And anybody who claims to know, in my opinion, is crazy. Not more, not less. If you can look at somebody suffering and say, Ah, oh, you're suffering? It's okay, you did Avedis. It's good for you. This is going to purify you. Then you're a callous person. Having said that, we believe that everything Hashem does is for a reason. Just because I don't know the reason, doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. Is one of the reasons that sometimes somebody could suffer to purify is such a reason. Go back to my metaphor of the grade school failure who becomes the Bill Gates later on. You know, would it be worth having temporary suffering now for abundant success later? Of course it would be. Can we see things in that context? No. When we suffer, suffering is an emotional quality. It's not an intellectual quality. Suffering is not an intellectual question. Uh, an intellectual question is you do an experiment and something doesn't add up you have a, a block you have to deal with the question when somebody is emotionally hurt it's not, a, it's not a question of explaining it away you can't explain away a feeling I feel hurt I'll explain it to you I'll explain it to you what does it help? I'm still hurt no amount of logic in the world can ever take the place of an emotional hole when somebody's suffering so suffering is something that by its very nature is, is a, it's very hard to deal with very very challenging very difficult we believe that we have the strength to deal with it just barely because if we wouldn't have the strength to deal with it Hashem wouldn't give it to us Hashem doesn't give us anything we can't handle if we needed to know the reason He would give us the reason too why? because He has to give us the tools that we need to deal with our suffering to deal with our pain if He doesn't give us the reason then this tells us we don't have to know the reason to deal with our pain it won't help us deal with the pain if it would help us deal with the pain then we would be given the reason and that's a very important premise we have to establish here. I don't know why people suffer. I question. Of course I question. I'm in hospitals very often. You see terrible suffering. And you shudder. And you say, God, please. You know? Why? Protect my loved ones. You see, it's very, very painful. There's a lot of suffering. We live in a world which is full of strife and full of sadness. And full of tragedy. 
And for anybody to be so arrogant as to go ahead and dictate, oh, you're suffering because you sinned and you need purification and this doesn't matter, is, is definitely wrong. Wrong. End of story. Are there reasons for everything? Yes. If somebody wants to academically sit and talk about different reasons as to why Mr. or Mrs. X would suffer, that's fine. I believe that it can never ever be personalized. The only one who can personalize it is the one suffering themselves. If somebody suffering themselves says, you know what, I know why this is happening to me. Or I should have done something else. That's their, that's their way of dealing with it and that's appropriate by the way. The Gemara says, something goes wrong with you, start to check on the things you've done. Why? Because it's a response. It's action oriented. You are faced with suffering now, what are you going to do about it? Succumb to the suffering or become a better person for it? The Torah demands a response. For you to say to somebody else suffering, Ah, oh, you're suffering, I'll tell you why. What is that? Is that a response? Is, is, that, how you, is that how you deal with somebody else's suffering? By, by alleviating it so it's okay, let them suffer? That's, that's how Zod is. That, that's cruelty. It's cold. It's indifference. Something we're never allowed to do. And that's why when you see somebody suffering, what do we have to do? We have to daven for them. For, not, for no other reason to show that we're not insensitive to somebody else's pain. Help them, daven for them. Reach out to them. So the answer to this big question is, theoretically there are many answers. Practically there are no answers. Because theoretical is in, in the world of intelligence. In the world of, of scholarship. And in scholarship, there are all kinds of holes and all kinds of ways to plug them. However, suffering or emotional distress is not something that any amount of reasoning is able to alleviate. And therefore, what do we have to do with suffering? We have to suffer through. What do we do when somebody loses a loved one? We come and explain to them why it's okay? We say, Hashem shall come for you. We're davening for you. We empathize. We're there for you. We grieve with you. And when you see people grieving and you see people that your sorrow, your pain touches them and it makes them pain, it brings them pain, somehow it creates a certain sense of consolation. That's human nature. We don't understand it, by the way. Why should it make me happy if you're suffering too? But misery loves company. And we don't know why. It's how Hashem created us. And therefore, empathy is the proper uh, response. The proper way for us to deal with somebody else's suffering is empathy. You see, the way I look at it, I see that both the Rebbe and the Rebbe and two tzaddikim and dealing with it in two different ways. Where the man's perspective is the intellectual perspective and the woman's perspective is the emotional perspective because that's in the two partners and I, I don't I see that exchange not that Rebbe is not chiding his wife Rebbe was equal with his wife in every way and I see the emotional response and the intellectual response it's an empathy that, that, that's the way I look at it and somebody once brought uh, the Rebbe's in a bouquet of flowers in, for an anniversary and there was a little note attached for um, that was, a, that was uh, the address it was written under Rebbe's name people should give it to the Rebbe so, and the note was a bunch of women who needed a bracha they weren't, didn't have children so they brought the note to the Rebbe the Rebbe said why are you bringing it to me the Rebbe said she could also give a bracha so the idea that it's not it's not um, two, two opposing perspectives but it's the beauty of two perspectives coming together and this is it's the whole beauty really of the concept of marriage and the concept of male and female and the concept of a wholesomeness that comes when, when it all joins together you know after the Rebbe lost his wife he, he spoke in terms like they couldn't he didn't feel he could be a Rebbe anymore he said the Gemara Malka Matanisa a king without a queen is not a monarch anymore and he was very concerned about how being able to relate to others similar thing when the third Rebbe the Rebbe's namesake Tzema lost his wife he reacted the same way so it's a 
it's, you're correct in, in, in understanding that. Yeah, yes, it takes a huge side to, to rationalize that. It takes a huge sitkanas to feel that. Both are true. Anyway, speaking of love, we have to love Hashem's creatures. And to love Hashem's creatures, what does it have to do with learning Torah? We have a mitzvah. You have to love your fellow as yourself. Why does the Mishnah focus here on loving the creatures? What does it have to do with Torah study, which is cerebral, and not the particular mitzvah of Yahavtol Reachel Kamecha? So, a simple understanding is, when you love somebody, you'll share with them the Torah you have. Aaron HaKohen is the paragon of love. And Aaron HaKohen, it says, He would love creatures. Interesting, we use the expression creatures. Calling somebody a creature is not a compliment. It means the only redeeming quality they have is that they're created. But that's it. They're ugly, they're vile, they're disgusting, they're just a creature. So Aaron would look at that creature, everybody else would say a creature, and he would say, oh, he would love them. And then what would he do? He would bring them close to the Torah. Not he would take the Torah away from Torah principles and make a new Judaism in order to reach them. Like certain movements that say, well, we have to dismantle halacha and dismantle tradition so that others could be able to embrace Torah. The Torah stays where the Torah is. The Torah doesn't move. The truth is something which cannot change. Because it's truth. We have creatures out there. Bring them home. Make a big door. Bring them close to the Torah. This is a fascinating concept. You want to be successful in your Torah study? Only one way. If you're comfortable sharing it with somebody else. If you're not comfortable sharing your Torah with a creature or you don't understand it well enough to be able to explain it to somebody else, then you don't understand it either. I once had an interesting situation. I, I was, used to go every Friday, as Lubavitch Yeshiva boys do, to put on phone with people and talk to them about Yiddishkeit. And, and somebody, uh, you know, once asked me a question or happened. A number of people asked questions about certain mitzvahs that I felt uncomfortable about. And I know, I was a 17-year-old kid, 18 years old. So I came to my Rosh Yeshiva and I said to him, how do you explain the weird mitzvahs? So he looks at me and he says, when you stop thinking they're weird, you'll be able to explain them. Which is so, so what do you mean? And I realized what he's saying. He said, it's weird because we think they're weird. The problem is not the people, the problem is me. I can't explain this one. You can't explain this one because you're not comfortable with it. That's true, maybe some things you're not comfortable with. But understand that if you're fully comfortable with something, you'll be able to explain it. You'll be able to relate it to others. And that is exactly what the Mishnah is telling us over here. Love all creatures. If you love them, you'll be able to reach out to them and to share to them.